Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome the playwright Christopher Durang. Chris, welcome. Hi, thank you. Glad to have you with us today. You, there's a show currently running at Playwrights Horizons here in New York, which was developed at Princeton at the McCarter Theater Center, called Miss Witherspoon, which Howard and I have both seen, and Howard and I kind of compared notes. A delightful show with an interesting message and subplot and text and whatever. Um, in the playwright's own words, what is Miss Witherspoon actually about? Well, uh, I, I normally say to people that... Uh, it tells the story of a woman who's committed suicide and is refusing to reincarnate because that's actually the uh, idea I started with. Um, um, my mind, you know, just went to reincarnation in the last few years and and uh, just thought it was interesting. It's not that I believe it exactly, but I don't not believe it. And uh, uh, I, though, then did think, you know, because I've had depressive periods in my life, wow, the one thing that's a little bothersome about it is that if you kill yourself, you come back. So you can't ever be done with Earth. And you apparently still have that, that instinct to kill oneself <laughs> when you're reincarnated. Well, well uh, I don't know if I do, but my character does. Show, yes. yes, Miss Witherspoon, uh, um, who's played by Christine Nielsen, who has been in some of my other plays, um, uh, we meet her in the beginning of the play uh, shortly before uh, one of her suicides, and then she greets us from the netherworld and, uh, you know, says that uh, she killed herself because she was so upset by Skylab, which uh, is explained in the play because most people have probably forgotten it. But it bothered me at the time. It was an American space station that was falling from the sky in the late 70s, and they didn't know where it was going to fall. It was just falling. And uh, it, it uh, so happens that it, it fell in Australia and didn't hurt, any, hurt anybody, but uh, both Miss Witherspoon and I were bothered by this notion that, you know, space systems could fall from the sky and, and brain you on the head. Uh, you wrote Miss Witherspoon post-9-11. Oh, I, I did, yes. Um, matter of fact, I, I, I don't know if this is interesting, but I hope it might be. Um, uh, a year after 9-11, there was a, a, a theatrical event called Brave New World, and it was like four evenings of playwrights writing short pieces about 9-11, and I was one of the ones asked to write something. And I, I, I found it very, very hard to write about 9-11. It, it felt too soon, and I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to say. So I ended up writing this monologue, which is actually the, presently the second scene of Miss Witherspoon, mm. in which Miss Witherspoon talks about finding the world scary, having committed suicide, uh, Skylab had frightened her. But from the netherworld, she says, at least I got to miss 9-11. And then she talks just a tiny bit about terrorism. In the original monologue, she talked a little bit more about it. But it... it it's one of the reasons she's killed herself, truly, is that she just finds the world both painful and scary. And was 9-11 one of the reasons why you wrote the entire show? Not just that one scene, but the overall show? Uh, yes, although, you know, uh, I might say... Because the, the monologue was definitely written because the assignment was to write about 9-11. I sort of looked at mm -hmm. it obli uh, obliquely or from the side, but... Um, uh, I came up with this idea that she was refusing to reincarnate in the middle of this monologue, and so that just intrigued me. And there is an under—it's discussed throughout the play the various things that frighten her, and she does end up reincarnating a few times in the play. 
and you know she's afraid of terrorism and anthrax and and uh, uh, toward the end of the play there are multiple nuclear exchanges um, in the future uh, um, so Yes, I would say uh, triggered by 9-11, but, but perhaps even more triggered by, you know, uh, what's happened in the world. I'm one of the people I, uh, who, you know, thinks our invading Iraq has made everything more dangerous, not less, uh, which is starting not to be the minority opinion anymore. It's at least 50-50 now. But uh, um, so that – and by the way, the play is not uh, directly political, but it has an undercurrent of uh, worry about the world. You are certainly recognized as one of the great comic voices writing for the stage. And, and for those who may not have seen a lot of your plays or haven't certainly haven't had a chance to see Miss Witherspoon unless they're in New York or New Jersey, um, we have to remind everybody that from these first few minutes of the conversation, your plays are always very, very funny, yet they do deal with very serious issues. Miss Witherspoon certainly deals with issues of faith, which mm. seems to be a, a very recurrent theme. Certainly your breakout show, Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you, the one act, um, dealt with with faith and certainly the Catholic Church, another that specific theme also coming up. Uh, I was rereading Laughing Wild, and indeed the monologues that you delivered in Laughing Wild certainly deal with faith. How do you, how do you grapple with faith within humor? Uh, well, in truth, it's not a conscious decision. Uh, it, it, by the way, when you introduce me as a comic writer, when I meet people at dinners who don't know me, I always say up front, I'm not funny in person. I'm very... <laughs> Sort of sincere and a little, and I and I want to be careful because uh, I was serious. even explaining to somebody uh-huh. earlier today when I said you are a comic writer, you write with humor, but you are not a comedy writer, right. and that's uh-huh. a, it's an important distinction. Yeah, well, with uh, Sister Mary Ignatius, uh, which was uh, 1980 briefly, and then 1981 was the time at Playwrights Horizons, uh, which it then moved off Broadway and ran for a couple of years. Um, uh, you know, I. It was odd. Some of that played as much funnier than I realized writing it. Uh, I had I was raised uh, Catholic, and I'm a baby boomer, so that means in the 50s and early 60s. And uh, uh, back then, the Catholic parochial school system was very well organized, and we were all taught from age six very intricate, intricate rules, which we were also taught as uh, fact. It was never... It was never like, here are the core beliefs and here are some side beliefs that may or may not be true. And I suppose that would be complex to tell a six-year-old. But, you know, we we all believed, for instance, that unbaptized babies went to limbo because God was such a bureaucrat. He couldn't allow them into heaven if they weren't baptized. So when I would have Sister Mary Ignatius explain limbo, the audience would laugh. And I actually wasn't doing too much, uh, except uh, sometimes there's a rhythm to comedy, and I, I think that some of my lines might rhythmically lead, lead you, but truthfully, it was saying some of the rules that that looked back on just seemed weird. Or, you know, we were taught that if you ate meat on Friday purposely, you would go to hell. So Adolf Hitler's in hell, and someone who ate meat on Friday. So that's a little odd. <laughs> um, so in any case, I didn't realize that Sister Mary would be quite as funny as it was, at least to most audiences. Um, 
And uh, interesting, you mentioned Laughing Wild. I actually just acted in a revival of it up in Boston. At the Huntington Theater. Right, uh, back in uh, June with Deborah Monk uh, playing the other part. And, and we it, should say it's a, the role you originated 18 years earlier at Playwrights Horizons. That's right. And subsequently played in Los Angeles as well. <laughs> that's right. I actually told Nicky Martin, who runs Huntington, that uh, he mustn't let me play it again if I'm 70 because I don't want to keep doing it. But... Um, um, I was thinking to myself that Laughing Wild, although not entirely about religion, to me is almost a, a midpoint between Sister Mary and Miss Witherspoon because um, Laughing Wild is, I think, my first play that I didn't draw from my family of origin. I was writing about myself and my own friends and our own concerns, and it, wasn't, it was no longer about parents. Uh, and and some of it, you know, some of my plays were uh, were specifically about parents. But some of my even absurdest plays, when I look back on, I realize, oh, I'm drawing from my grandmother here, or I'm drawing from my mother there. And and uh, Laughing Wild is uh, I'm not doing that oddly, uh, nor am I doing that in Miss Witherspoon. And um, uh, uh, and just like Miss Witherspoon is upset with how she can function in the world as it is, the woman in Laughing Wild, which was written in 1987. Uh, is very upset. Uh, she lives <laughs> in New York City, and uh, the intensity of the city, and, and uh, this was also a period when uh, uh, a few years earlier Reagan had uh, changed the funding, so all these mental patients were just released out onto the streets, which was actually extremely noticeable in New York because I lived here at that time. And uh, matter of fact, the woman in Laughing Wild says that she was in a mental institution, so that was one of my inspiration. But she... Uh, uh, is very, very smart but very volatile and, and a little unreasonable. And it's some, we learn that she's hit somebody in the supermarket who is in her way in front of the tuna fish aisle. And that later, when there's a man comes out and is, is giving a speech, sort of a self-help speech about uh, positive thinking, and I played this part. And failing to stay and positive. And failing to, yes. He, he keeps spiraling into negativity and then trying to get himself out again. But he turns out to have been the person she attacked in the tuna fish aisle. And... Um, since I guess I was writing the part somewhat close to me, I mean, he says he works in a magazine, which I don't, but um, uh, some of the concerns were mine. I, I just found that he ended up bringing up religion a fair amount um, and um, also bringing up – it's interesting. He, he, I, I don't think too many Supreme Court cases get discussed in plays, but in my Laughing Wild, he has a whole – he has a brief discussion about the – the uh, 1980, I think it's 86, Bauer v. Hardwick uh, case where the Supreme Court decided uh, five to four to let states criminalize uh, consensual homosexual behavior. And that case was just overturned uh, a year ago, which is an extraordinary thing. It's very unusual. That was that the it, case in Texas? Yes, the case in Lawrence versus somebody. Um, so I'm thrilled that it's overturned, but I must say one reason that when we did the play in Boston, uh, it still felt relevant was that, you know, the country is such that, you know, that there's a big part of the country that would like to overturn it again <laughs> and get us back to that. But I, I, I remember being so angry at that, uh, just the notion that because there are a few passages in the Bible that say homosexual behavior is a sin, that somehow that should be part of our laws, um, just it's really shocked me when that happened. Well, Miss Witherspoon in your play is in and out of heaven a number of times. She keeps being reincarnated, returning mm -hmm. to heaven. Each not, time, not heaven, if I may. Well, uh, whatever the netherworld, the, 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 the afterworld. Uh, 
Does Miss Witherspoon herself believe in, in God? Does she have religion? Number one. And then her counselor in the netherworld is, is a Hindu lady named Mariana. Not Mariana with an N, but Mariana. Why a Hindu spirit? Why the netherworld? And where does religion and belief in God fit into all of this? Well, um, you know, as you probably know, Catholicism does not teach or believe in reincarnation. So this plays about reincarnation. So she doesn't go to heaven. She goes to um, who knows where. She goes to some spirit place. And when I was writing the play, I, I had a couple of uh, friends who had become Buddhist. So I asked them to tell me about uh, some Buddhist beliefs, and, and they told me about, and this turns out to be uh, primarily Tibetan Buddhism, I believe, but that that form of Buddhism believes in something called the bardo, which is a, a stopping off place between lives. And I thought that was so, A, interesting as a concept. I mean, I'd known about reincarnation, but I, and by the way, this isn't all Buddhism, but it's this one particular thing. But I, I liked it, and oddly, it's a little bit like the Catholic belief of purgatory, only purgatory is punishment in it, and the bardo was actually just a waiting place. And uh, so, basically, I, I, uh, write about this waiting place and 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 thus the guide there I kind of had to make it up but it it does seem to be you know mostly uh eastern people who mm -hmm. uh believe in uh reincarnation or at least that's well anyway primarily and uh so I in writing the play thought well I sh I, I was led to um to uh have an indian woman be the uh guide there and by the way the name mariyama um i played tennis as a as a high school student with an indian exchange student named mariyama uh -huh. so uh i just took that name because it's one of the few indian people i knew although i'm i'm since told that actually mariyama is a somewhat christian influenced name in india but i still liked it um but um uh, anyway, so so that's that's how we get to the bardo, which is explained in the play, since that's not common knowledge uh, and wasn't common knowledge to me. Well, and then Miss Witherspoon seems to go to your other question, if, if it's okay, when yeah, you sure. said, it, does she believe in God? Uh, she clearly struggles with it. Um, uh, the Indian guy, Miss Witherspoon is upset to be in some Indian heaven and says, you know, I thought the afterlife would be nothing, but if it has to be something, I want it to be St. Peter in the pearly gates. And uh, the Indian guide, Mariama, says, well, you, in your last life, you stopped believing in Christianity very early. And so uh, your soul is now imagining me in heaven because it's starting to recognize reincarnation. And in the play, just so I, I didn't want to be seen as like saying this is how it really is in the afterlife, because I don't know, of course, that Mariama says to people, to Miss Witherspoon, you know, if you believe in St. Peter when you die, that's who you see. And uh, if you're a Muslim, there's a Muslim heaven and there's a pet heaven. And then there's this uh, joke that uh, since jo Jewish people primarily don't believe in an afterlife, that uh, for them it's like prolonged general anesthesia. And at that point, Miss Witherspoon says she wants to go to that one. <laughs> well, her name in real life within the show is Veronica. Why does the her counselor, this, this Indian lady, why does she insist on calling her Miss Witherspoon? Is there a message in that name? Oh, I don't know that there's a message. It, it's funny. When I started writing the play, I, I called her Veronica. No one ever says the name in the entire play. So unless you look at the playbill, you don't know it's named Veronica. But um, I actually based it on this cranky woman I knew named Veronica. But um, uh, early in the play, uh, Ms. Witherspoon says that in the uh, afterlife, she's considered to have a bad attitude and be difficult. And so just in the first scene, and I write a little bit intuitively, in the first scene, Mariama called her 
Miss uh, Witherspoon, and uh, Veronica says, that's my, not my name, and she says, well, that's our nickname for you. You're like some difficult woman in an Agatha Christie book who everybody finds bothersome. And so um, I, I and Mary Amma both started to just like calling her Miss Witherspoon. Um, but anyway, it is a it is a nickname. Well, you draw from real life and Mariama and Veronica, people that you've known. Maybe you have been reincarnated. But you don't <laughs> even realize it. Who do you think you would have been in a previous life? Well, I'm embarrassed to tell you I just had this conversation recently because I did have an idea. <laughs> um, when I was little, I, I was very interested in playwriting from like age six, which is sort of odd. Now, my mother loved theater, so I also got that from her. But my father's family, the Durang, Durangs, they had generations of architects. My father and grandfather and great-grandfather were architects. and um, But further back in the family tree, they were actors. And in the 1700s, there was a John Durang in Philadelphia who was an actor-dancer. I actually saw a credit suggesting that he was the first professional American actor. Well, I don't know. I don't know if he was the f- the first. Uh, what I've sometimes seen is that it says the first professional American actor who who did a record of it because he wrote a memoir, which is in the library called Memoir of John Durang, which I'm embar- I own it. And I'm embarrassed to say I haven't read it. You would think I would or should, but I did see that his birthday is like January 3rd or 4th and mine is January 2nd, and after writing this play, I suddenly thought, now, is it possible I'm, I'm him? <laughs> did you hang out in the Bardo for 200 years? <laughs> Maybe so. So, you know, I don't, I don't say that with any enormous conviction, but it did enter my mind recently since you asked that question. A possibility. <laughs> Before we move on to, to some of your other work, you commented that you you see the the flow from Sister Mary Ignatius to Laughing Wild to Miss Witherspoon and in looking at those plays it seems the two earlier plays seemed to have much more anger in them Mm. and that Mm -hmm. this one um, seems to be more about acceptance and what's your journey been over those 25 years in terms of if indeed you have found more acceptance with, with the issues you're dealing with well, I think you're right to say that the first two plays seem angrier than Miss Witherspoon. Miss Witherspoon, oddly, without going into describing the ending, is at the same time there's a lot of despairing stuff going on. There's some hopefulness at the ending as well. Um, and also the play is primarily... Uh, I, I, I feel that the play is almost like a fable uh what if the afterlife were like the bardo and that you went to this place between choosing lives and what if you tried to not reincarnate and then they forced you to and then you kept committing suicide again and again until at some point Miss Witherspoon does decide to stop committing suicide. So she does get to that place. Um, And I think I probably am more mellow as I got older. But you know what's something a little weird though? I didn't feel angry writing Sister Mary Ignatius. I, I had no connection to feeling anger. Possibly at the when Diane uh, goes has her long speech to Sister where, where she eventually pulls a gun and says everything's your fault, Sister. But at the time, I mean, I also thought that Diane was, a, was mentally disturbed. And when she says to Sister, everything's your fault, that's silly. It, everything isn't Sister's fault. But um, I, I feel that in some of my earlier plays, rather than feel the anger, I, I wrote it. And it's it's almost a kind of a disassociation, I think, because in life now I actually feel more angry um, uh, 
you know, some political things. I, I, I don't actually have high blood pressure. I'm happy to say, but I, my blood pressure goes up much more noticeably uh, about things in the world now, uh, than it did back when I was writing those plays. I, I feel like it's uh, maybe it's gotten into my personality more. Coming off of this heady discussion of faith <laughs> and and your progression, we should also point out that virtually simultaneous with Miss Witherspoon, you also had a new musical that was being having its world premiere down in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Theater Company, Adrift in Macau. And Adrift in Macau is largely a parody, not of a specific piece of material. Can you can you tell us just a little bit about Adrift in Macau? Yeah, I, I normally say that it's a a parody of a film noir, um, which is that term referring to the movies of the 40s and 50s, which are gangsters and gun malls. And, and however, the, my parody isn't so much interested in the crime aspects, but much more interested in the smoking nightclubs and the glamorous women who are who get jobs as nightclub singers, no matter how well or badly they sing, because they're the leading lady. And um, and these sort of men of mystery like Alan Ladd or Robert Mitchum, and the main character's name Mitch, sort of for Robert Mitchum, um, so I, I sometimes also say that it was uh, it's me in a good mood writing this because truthfully it was just very fun to write and very playful and and there um, you know there isn't really any uh, true emotional content it's just sort of having fun with uh, love of movies because I, I I'm I was obsessed with movies in college and after afterward I, I just loved old movies and I still love them but um, and what because it it's a parody and I. I You've returned to parody many times in your career, from your earliest works, The Idiots Karamazov, and uh, the Vietnamization of New Jersey, which at least started as a specific parody, um, even to what I think you're trying to turn into the new holiday favorite of Mrs. Bob Cratchit's <laughs> Wild Christmas Binge. What what appeals to you about riffing off of other works of art? Um you know, one of one of the ones that I wrote was uh, For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls, which is a one-act parody of Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. And uh, I was so happy when the critics referred to it as an affectionate parody because I, I feel that most of my parody stuff, it comes from affection. Um, do you remember the Carol Burnett TV show where she used to do uh, movie parodies a lot? Sure, sure. And there's, I don't know, there's... That famous gone with the, went with, yes. the, went with the wind. Yes, yes, she where, where she comes down the staircase and she has the curtain rod in her dress uh, uh, from when uh, Scarlett took the her dress from the curtains. Um, I I just think it's it, it it's a fun way to remember the the movies that you liked, uh, but, but by exaggerating certain elements... Uh, but it's it's not like satire where the laughter is meant to either sting or meant to make a comment. It's not like, oh, Gone with the Wind was a bad movie. It's kind of like, oh, you know, remember when she took the curtains and made her dress? Wouldn't it be funny if they left the curtain rod in? Or, you know, that um, that kind of thing. So um, so is your work satire or parody in these, in these many plays you've done? I think it depends on the play. I think Sister Mary Ignatius is satire. And I think uh, Drifton Macau is parody, and and um, the the Tennessee Williams one from the Southern Belt Holes is parody, and something like a history of the American film, 
which goes a long way back, is some odd mixture because it is mostly parody, but it's also was attempting to follow American self-image through the silence of the 20s uh, up through World War II and then kind of losing their way in the post-war section and blah, blah, blah. We've been talking mostly about Christopher Durang, the playwright. There's another Christopher Durang, the actor as well. And you have acted in a number of your own plays. Right, yes, uh-huh. Do you consider yourself an actor who writes plays, a playwright who acts, or a little bit of each? Uh, oh, I definitely think of myself as a playwright who sometimes acts. Um, and uh, uh, several times I, I sort of thought I will just be a writer and not do any acting. And then circumstances kept sort of presenting me with opportunities. I mean, the first one was actually when I went to Yale School of Drama as a graduate student in the early 70s. And uh, uh, I... I had gone to Harvard as an undergrad, and uh, I kept auditioning for plays and never got got cast. And I thought, oh, I guess in the small world of high school, I was a, you know, a better actor in in college. I guess I'm not that good. So certainly, when I go to Yale School of Drama, I won't do any acting whatsoever because they're actually studying to be professional actors. And then they had a the Yale Cabaret had a different show every single weekend, and it turns out that they needed as many actors as possible. And in the first uh, so your first opportunity was based on volume? <laughs> <laughs> Partially based on volume, although it was also based on uh, uh, it was a one-act musical I'd, I'd written, and uh, it was the first time I got to know Sigourney Weaver, who was a fellow s- student of, of mine at Yale, and we became good friends. And uh, another actor was playing her brother, who dropped out a week before, and so they asked me to play the part. And then oddly, from my doing that, I kept getting roles in the you know, somewhat small world of Yale School of Drama. But um, by the time I finished, uh, I actually got my equity card, which was both thrilling for me, but also not something I was looking for. So actually, um, anyway, I, I get a, 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 I've enjoyed the acting I've done. And I also uh, have found it, at Yale, I actually found it a learning experience too, because sometimes I'd be in plays, even ones that I didn't write, with uh, with the actors. And, you know, we would all deal with, gee, this scene isn't working. How can we play it a different way? Analyzing what was making the scene well, not seem to work. So it was interesting. When you've written a play, have you written a play with Christopher Durang, the actor, in mind? Or has that just kind of happened that you had to go in and, and act in your own You play? know, it's mostly just happened with, I guess, the exception of Laughing Wild. Um, I, I did, uh, I wrote the woman's monologue first and... Uh, my friend E. Catherine Kerr, a very gifted actress, created the role, and she and I had become friends, and so she rec- she suggested I write something for myself. And I've, so she sort of gave me permission to, in a way. <laughs> but most of the time, I've just ended up playing it. The Marriage of Bet and Boo... Well, in which you yeah. were essentially playing yourself. Yes. Or, or a, a version no, of No, absolutely. Yourself. Well, that's my one play that I, I acknowledge is, is unabashedly biographical because uh, there are many aspects of my parents' marriage and my father's struggle with alcoholism that are shown in in the characters of Bet and Boo. And so when their son is a character, and in the early drafts he was just sort of a narrator and wasn't in it too much. And then in the later drafts he starts that way, but he gets more involved as it goes on. And uh, I... um, I knew it was it, it, it. What it felt like to me was my version of Tom and Glass Menagerie, where Tom clearly feels like Tennessee Williams, and I wasn't expecting to ever act in it. And the strange thing, because uh, I, I kept Joe Papp was alive at the time, and I was trying to get him to do a play of mine, and I, I brought him Marriage of Bet and Boo, and he thought about it. You know, we had several readings over a couple of years, and then 
just the weirdest thing because Joe didn't tend to see that much theater outside his own theater sometimes, but he happened to see me in two plays, and it was his suggestion that I play play the part. Um, and I was very intimidated, but then I thought, wow, Joe Papp is asking me to be in my own play? What, it would be weird if I didn't try that. Yet at the same time, it's got to be hard enough for an, as an author to write a play which is based in your family and which indeed and you've you've written in introductions to your plays you've written about how awkward indeed it was to do Bet and Boo especially while your father was still alive and in fact you tabled it for a right, little bit right right I did table it uh, uh, he had a stroke and then wasn't able to follow what was happening in the world anymore and at that point I felt okay about doing it but to write it is cathartic and difficult and creates issues to then go out on stage eight times a week and live it, that must have been quite an experience. Well, it was a it was an experience. Uh, I mean, what I felt about it a little bit was sometimes I would have a sense of myself on stage and think, wow, I'm actually kind of a private person. What am I doing in this play playing myself? It's really disorienting. On the other hand, I had worked with the director, Jerry Zach several times by then, and Jerry was the director. And before we started, I did say to him in all sincerity that my playwriting was more important than my being in it, and so that if in rehearsal it wasn't working, he should know that he really could replace me, and I, the author, could hear that news. Um, And then I think why Joe Papp thought of my being in it, and it's interesting, um, I I later learned, uh, or around the same time I learned that uh, Gretchen Cryer, you know, had written uh, Getting My Act Together and Taking on the Road. Um, um, She had not written it for herself, but it came from her own feelings, and Joe actually said, you should do it. So that was like two experiences I knew where he... He, he he had the author just go ahead and be in it and just sort of unabashedly acknowledge the uh, the autobiograph- autobiographical thing. And I I really loved working with the other actors. So in some senses it was a it was a pleasurable is the word that comes to mind. Uh, it's not quite accurate, but it it was a very rich experience. It was a uh, it was interesting to do. If um, if somebody were to be reincarnated, Miss Witherspoon or anybody <laughs> be reincarnated, and the last life was so long ago, it was before you were born. Now they've returned. They're not familiar with Christopher Durang, the playwright. <laughs> of all the different plays you've written, which one would you recommend that they see as most representative of your work? Just select one of the many shows. Oh, gosh, that's a little hard. Um, and then why? <laughs> of course. <laughs> there always has to be a why. Uh... uh. I don't quite know how to answer. The first one that comes to mind is Sister Mary Ignatius. Mm-hmm. explains it all for you. And that really, although it was also controversial, as you may recall, and even had picket lines and protests uh, from what I viewed as conservative Catholics who felt it was uh, unfairly um, critical, while I felt that it was actually rather accurate. Uh, and further, I'm allowed as a Catholic to have that opinion mm-hmm. if I wish. Um, so that was very successful, uh, both financially and critically, and it actually changed my career. I mean, I actually became, so I could earn a living as a, as a writer, which I sort of hadn't been up until then. Um, my, now, my hesitation about recommending that is that it, because it's sort of controversial, um, 
And uh, the marriage of Bette and Boo that we just mentioned is actually has a lot of warmth in it. And uh, Olympia Dukakis, who played Soot in it, said in one rehearsal that she thought, thought that the play was about forgiveness somehow. And I really liked when she said that. I mean, I didn't sit down and go, oh, this is about forgiveness. But on some level, there, there was an element of that in there. Would, so uh, maybe I'd say both plays, if you'll let me. <laughs> and if you, if you had to choose between the two, which is your personal favorite? Which one do you, do you feel most comfortable or happiest with? Which of your child, children do you love <laughs> most is yes, what John exactly. is, of course, asking. Or is exactly. there, or is, or is I, I love Cordelia you best. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we talk about the different roles, Chris Durang, the playwright Chris Durang, the actor, there is also Chris Durang, the teacher. And I find it really interesting that you are co-chair of the playwriting uh, department at the, Juli- the, the prestigious Juilliard School. How did that come to be? And can you tell us because you you do co-chair it, and and you you are paired with another very interesting playwright. Right, uh, I, I co-teach with Marcia Norman, the uh, author of Night Mother, and also presently the book writer of The Color Purple, soon to open. And um, 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 Michael Kahn, uh, who's up until recently, he's just retired, but he he's just about he he was has been running the Juilliard School. He. Uh, there was money that hadn't been used for a playwriting department, and he decided to, to use it. And he uh, asked Marsha – I, I don't know whose idea it was that there should be team teaching, but he asked Marsha first, and then Marsha asked me if I would join her. And I'd never done team teaching or, or experienced it either. Um, I think it's been very successful for us. Um, one of my you – know, I, I wondered what if Marsha and I disagreed a lot, and I, I found out that even though our work has uh, certainly is stylistically very different, I I find that we really agree a lot. But even when we agree, we will have different ways of emphasizing it. And I think it's good for the students that they hear these slight differences. Among other things, it keeps us from turning into gurus. I uh, When I had some of my own... Uh, experience being a, a student with some uh, writing teachers. Uh, actually, there was, wasn't so much teachers I had, but teachers I knew of, uh, you know, who, who sort of almost wanted to be a cult figure after a while. And uh, I think that that can be dangerous because it's, uh, I think that, you know, artistic things are very subjective. So it's very hard to say, oh, this play is not good and, oh, this play is good. Uh, you know, you obviously can go on your impulses and your knowledge. But anyway, I really enjoy uh, the teaching. The other thing is that the setup at Juilliard is that um, uh, we get to choose. Uh, it's a very small program. We have eight students and two teachers, um, and we get to choose the uh, the students based on the work they submit. And so far, we've never accepted anybody that both Marsha and I haven't liked. We've. Uh, I remember there was one year that she liked someone I didn't, and I liked somebody she didn't, and we said, "Okay, well, we won't take either then." Um, um, so we we get to choose um, people we feel uh, 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 drawn to, and thus I feel our teaching. I do think you can't quote quote teach writing, but I do think you can mentor it. Is what I end up liking to say. And, and in my experience, being taught by some excellent teachers like Jules Pfeiffer and Howard Stein and um, William Alfred at Harvard, um, is that getting feedback from from your work is just really, really useful. And I remember that uh, when I was lucky enough to have Jules Pfeiffer as a teacher for one year at Yale, that, um, you know, some sometimes I would get feedback from uh, other teachers like, um, Does, Act 2 doesn't quite work with me, and then that's all they'd say. And you'd think, well, okay, but what? Well, Jules would uh, 
say, oh, the play was working for me fine until it got to page seven. And right here, uh, I started not to believe it. And then on, and he got very, very specific. So I've actually tried to copy him to some degree, you know, as well as, you know, I find it very important both as an actor and as a writer to know things that people like too, because if you only hear things that people are having trouble with, uh, it's so valuable to know, oh, yes, but people said they really like this section. So let me, A, make sure to hold on to it, and B, what is it about that section that was good that I can maybe draw from? The, the, the plays that your students uh, write for class, do, do any of them get produced, either at Juilliard or elsewhere? Um, the, uh, well, actually, our grads have uh, uh, been rather successful. Um, probably the most well-known is David Auburn, who won the Pulitzer Prize for Proof. <laughs> I guess that's pretty well-known. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, he, he comes by his talent on his own. But uh, needless to say, it's a, we're very proud of him. And we've had other, uh, David Lindsay Abair is a writer who studied with us, Daniel Goldfarb, Julia Jordan, Stephen Belber, they, um, uh, Noah Heidel, who just recently had a play. Have any of the works that they've developed in class been produced, or is it just other works that they've uh, produced? And, uh, yes, some of them. Uh, David Lindsay Abair's plays were were initially done in class. Uh, Fuddy Mears, I remember he brought it in. Um, yeah, so um, I, I, what I actually think is rather than, although I think Marsha and I have done well with our teaching, I think it's actually our choice of students, which is especially um, good. I you think, think you're great scouts? I think we might be good scouts. You know, mm-hmm. we, we met, we got to be friends when we were on the Young Playwrights Festival Selection Committee for about five or six years. That's that very lovely organization that Stephen Sondheim started that was based on one from the Royal Court and all the writers are like 18 years and younger. But the committee was like, it was so interesting, it was like 12 rather high-powered um, um, playwrights and composers, uh, Sondheim and Wendy Wasserstein and Marsha Norman and uh, A.R. Gurney and Jules Pfeiffer. And and um, um, it was so interesting to find, it, it. it's one of the things that has made me realize how, what a tough situation it is to expect a critic to agree with you all the time because here we were, these uh, 15 writers or so, and every year we would have one play we'd all think was great, one play we all thought was terrible, and then every all the plays in the middle we had every opinion under the sun. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a learning experience, that. Well, the eight people or so that take your class certainly get to hear from you on a regular basis. How about for our radio audience, many of whom are students, but also people who are maybe out of school who are aspiring playwrights? Any advice you could you could give from your years of playwriting and teaching as well for would-be playwrights? Uh, well, uh, in class, we're usually dealing with a specific play, and thus the feedback is to that, and so I can't give a listener that kind of feedback. Right. But uh, the kinds of things I, uh, looking back at my own journey, and I get a little worried that because I'm old enough now that it's now 30 years ago or something, so I, I don't know that it's identically the same. But what I tell people uh, among the things I say are that they should be prolific. That I, 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 uh, I remember I had, uh, well, my play, A History of the American Film, I thought was going to like go somewhere for me, and it did eventually. But it sort of got stalled, and it was very important that I just went on and wrote another play. You can't just hold on to the one play and decide that that's the one, and then because you just never know what's going to, you know, hit somebody's uh, fancy and taste. Uh, then it's so hard to get find what doors open, and also to get anybody to read your scripts. And so, it's also uh, 
I early on applied to contests, you know, which are set up to read scripts, um, and I won one of them. And uh, so I, I recommend people doing that. I then also recommend applying to, and I think there are more than there used to be, those sort of workshops that do that take like ten or twelve plays and develop them. And and the famous place is the O'Neill National Playwrights Conference. And I also like to tell people that I was turned down there four times before I was finally accepted the fifth, which also shows you perseverance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, in a funny way, that was lucky because that was with that play, History of the American Film. Um, and um, then I don't think going to school is the only way of doing it. It's the way that I ended up doing it. And one of the things that happened at Yale School of Drama, which I didn't know was going to happen, is that uh, some of my teachers were well-known, like Jules Pfeiffer or Robert Brustein, and they ended up writing wonderful letters of recommendation, which uh, really carried clout. Um, although, you know, I must say that when we get our applications, I really do read the letters of recommendation, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't, I mean, sometimes if it's a famous person, you listen perhaps a bit more, but, uh, you know, it can also be uh, a non-famous person who writes a really convincing letter of recommendation. So uh, so that's it. I, unfortunately, I, but there's no magic thing of it, I must say. And, you know, also, um, well, anyway, I, you know, I know playwrights who I think are talented who haven't somehow either sustained or that you haven't heard of and all that kind of but stuff. But basically a person has to write, has to practice writing and then try to get it read. Yeah. It sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good. Well, on that note, Christopher Durang, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Let me also mention that uh, Miss Witherspoon is running here in New York at Playwrights Horizons through December 18th. So you still have a couple weeks to, if you're in the New York area to see Miss Witherspoon, which even though we talked about it being uh, uh, about about uh, committing suicide and reincarnation and all that, it really is a comedy. It's a very lighthearted show with a message hidden. In right. It. Yeah. Right. Yes, it is hidden. So we, again, mostly hidden. <laughs> at uh, Playwrights Horizons, now through December 18th, Miss Witherspoon, written by Christopher Drang. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Chris, thanks for being with us. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.com. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.